Radio Westeros, Episode 84, Nymeria and the Roinar. Spoilers all books! Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere and with me as always is my co-host Yokeboy. Hi everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in today for today's episode all about the Roinar and their leader Nymeria of Nisar. We'll begin with a close look at the history and culture of the Roinish people when they established themselves as a major civilization stretched along the banks of their mother Roin, alongside the Andals. With their arts and crafts renowned even to this day, we'll see how wonderful the riverside culture really was. Next, things will take a twist when major changes in the associate political landscape see the ostensibly peaceful Roinar come under threat. With the Empire of Old Gis eventually defeated, the dragon-riding and slave-driving Valyrians continued to expand their borders, bringing about an inevitable conflict with the Roinish people as they looked to establish themselves along Mother Roin. While the Roinar were notably a force to be reckoned with when roused to wrath, not even their brilliant water magicians could withstand the ruthless and literal firepower of the Valyrians. We'll see what happens when Nymeria emerges as a leader and tries to save what's left of her people, embarking on the legendary journey of 10,000 ships. By then, living on the Rhine had become impossible, but their other options were also terrible. Stay tuned to see what happens when Nymeria lands in the Basilisk Isle, Sothorios, and then the mysterious Butterfly Isle of Narth. Finally, we'll follow Nymeria's landing in Dorne as the Rhoynar attempt to settle for good. What were Dorne and House Martell like when they arrived? And what happened after Morse Martell made the fateful decision to marry Nymeria and look on as she burned her fleet for good? We're going to see why Nymeria is thought of as a legendary figure in Dorne to this day and examine her legacy, from books written about her to a certain stark direwolf being named after her. So, a packed episode today that will take you on a memorable journey steeped in the rich culture of one of the major ethnic groups of Westeros. This episode follows our recent looks at the First Men and the Andals, but if you haven't heard them, then this one will stand alone just fine. And just a quick bit of housekeeping before we start, we're delighted to announce that we have a new patron-exclusive episode available. This episode is all about giants, from their roots in mythology to their ancient history in A Song of Ice and Fire to their place in the current story with Mag the Mighty and One One Wig Darwin. You won't want to miss this one. Join us at patreon.com slash radioestros for access to giants and all our bonus content. And we're also planning further Patreon-only content for later Later this year, so come on and join us. Your support of just three dollars per episode helps keep Radio Westeros alive during this long night as we await the winds of winter. And speaking of patrons, before we begin, we want to thank all of our patrons for their support, including our Flaming Lightbringer patron T.J. Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons Alex, Aka, and the Company of the Cats, Chris B. The Song of Ice. Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Moltude, John Wargarian, and Empty Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib-Jab Hot Dog Shop, House Motto, We Forge the Chains We Wear in Life. 
Thanks so much, everyone. We hope you enjoy the episode. So now let's get started. This is Nisa, where the mother gathers in her wild daughter Noin, but she will not reach her widest point until she meets her other daughters. At Dagger Lake, the coin comes rushing in, the darkling daughter full of gold and amber from the axe and pine cones from the forest of Kohor. South of there, the mother meets Lorulu, the smiling daughter from the golden fields. Where they join once stood Croyan, the festival city, where the streets were made of water and their houses made of gold. Then south and east again for long leagues until at last comes creeping in Seloru, the shy daughter who hides her course in reeds and writhes. There Mother Roin waxes so wide that a man upon a boat in the centre of the stream cannot see a shore to either side. You shall see, my little friend. In our own world, humans were once a species of hunter-gatherers, traversing the landscape in search of places that offered safety and sustenance. When the earliest civilizations formed, there was one essential ingredient that provided the bedrock of survival. One of our basic needs is fresh water, and so it follows that any ancient settlement attempting to feed mouths must first offer a plentiful supply of water. So it's no surprise that many ancient cities that prospered and endured for ages were initially built by the banks of major rivers. Yeah, you have Babylon on the Euphrates, Cairo on the Nile, and Rome on the Tiber. And in the A Song of Ice and Fire universe, the first men are said to have originated in the grasslands of Essos, serviced by the river San. And in Westeros, the Riverlands are noted by Maester Yandel to be the beating heart of Westeros. Is it any wonder then that the River Rhoyne, being one of the largest rivers in the known world, supported a vast civilization spread up and down its unending banks? Those people were the Rhoynar, and despite their riverine civilization eventually being turned on its head by their aggressive neighbors from the Valyrian Empire, they still live on, having found a second home in Westeros, integrating with the people of Dorne. This was the third mass migration into Westeros after the First Men and then the Andals, and in modern Westeros, all three ethnic groups mingled together keeping in mind the royal titles that we first hear attributed to Robert Baratheon when he arrives at Winterfell, King of the Andals and the Rhoynar and the First Men. And so today we'll be focusing on who the Rhoynar were in ancient days when they dwelt by their mother river in Essos, why they left their homeland, and what happened when they eventually landed in Dorne. Given what we've said about rivers providing the foundations for burgeoning civilizations, let's turn our eyes to the first human civilizations in Planetos, which are said to have sprung up near the River San in what we now call the Dothraki Sea. Maester Yandel teaches us, It was here amidst these grasses that civilization was born in the Dawn Age, 10,000 years ago or more, when Westeros was yet a howling wilderness, inhabited only by the giants and the children of the forest, the first true towns arose beside the banks of the River San and beside the myriad vassal streams that fed her on her meandering course northward to the Shivering Sea. 
The histories of those days are lost to us, sad to say, for the kingdoms of the grass came and went in large measure before the race of man became literate. Only the legends persist. If this is true, we can then assume the original Roinar were once a wandering tribe, perhaps looking for a place to settle in an increasingly competitive world. Coming upon the Roin, they must have felt like they'd struck gold. Not only was the Roin a vital source of water, but it was large enough to support as many settlements as they could imagine, and being so vast, the river would provide a great bounty of fish and other resources for the settlers to sustain themselves with. And from a logistical standpoint, the breadth of the flowing river could also provide a strategic protective barrier, as well as offering natural transportation if they wanted to settle other locations along the river and set up trade networks. It's no wonder then that the Roinar seem to have found great contentment along the river, with no noted designs to expand elsewhere. Those flowing waters were the lifeblood of their civilization. And they were so thankful for this natural feature that they incorporated the Roin into their religion. Just as weirwoods were viewed as essential to the followers of the old gods, Mother Roin became the centre of Roinish culture. But before we dig into the tenets of that culture, let's first familiarise ourselves with the geography of the Roin in order to get a grasp of the scale of Roinish civilization. The northernmost branch and origin of the Rhoyne is called the Upper Rhoyne, which begins some way south of Bravos in northern Essos. Its first main tributary, the Little Rhoyne, begins in the Velvet Hills east of Pentos, passing the ruined ancient Rhoynish city of Gohandrohi, which Daenerys passes with her new Kalisar when leaving Pentos, and also where Tyrion later boards the Shy Maid, embarking on his trip downriver. At the point that both these rivers merge, west of Goyandroihi, the Roin proper begins, snaking down through western Essos, collecting tributaries with names like Noin, Koin, Luhuru and Soloru, until northeast of the present-day coastal city of Volantis, it splits off into four mouths, forming a great delta on the coast of the Summer Sea that's reminiscent of the giant Mekong Delta in Vietnam. The Roin is a continent-spanning river akin to the Nile or the Danube, noted to be the mightiest of all rivers, and so we shouldn't be surprised when Yandri, captain of the Shy Maid, informs Tyrion that, after it gathers its final tributary, quote, the Mother Roin waxes so wide that a man upon a boat in the centre of the stream cannot see a shore to either side. The settling Broinar therefore had plenty of room to expand along the length of the river. They no doubt started off small, but over time, having mastered river life, they began to form a powerful civilization. Maester Yandel says, Fishers, traders, teachers, scholars, workers in wood and stone and metal, they raised their elegant towns and cities from the headwaters of the Rhoyne down to her mouth, each lovelier than the last. 
Yandel goes on to note a handful of said cities, and each seems to have had its own cultural identity. We've mentioned Goyandrohi, which Tyrion notes was severely ruined. He thinks the canals were choked with reeds and mud, and pools of stagnant water gave birth to swarms of flies. The broken stones of temples and palaces were sinking back into the earth, and gnarled old willows grew thick along the riverbanks. Yet Yandel informs us that once the city was a beautiful place with its groves and waterfalls. Then there was Nisar, the city of fountains, alive with song, Arnoy with its halls of green marble, and flowery Sarmel. Sarhoy was known for its canals and saltwater gardens, and Croyane, noted by Yandel to have been the greatest Rhoynish city of all, was a festival city. Its centerpiece was the great palace of love revered by the Rhoynar. As a side note, the term festival city was used by George earlier in his career in his Thousand Worlds universe, specifically his first novel, The Dying of the Light. The purpose of a so-called festival city seems to have been to offer a showcase of a specific culture, summoning people from the fringes to celebrate everything that culture had to offer. And so, Croyan might have represented the pinnacle of Rhoynish culture before the Valyrian devastation. However, when Tyrion passes through Croyan on his journey south, Halden Halfmaester says its centerpiece is no longer called the Palace of Love, but more aptly, the Palace of Sorrow. It says, All Tyrion could see was something massive rising from the river, humped and ominous. He took it for a hill looming above a wooded island or some colossal rock overgrown with moss and ferns and hidden by the fog. As the shy maid drew nearer, though, the shape of it came clearer. A wooden keep could be seen beside the water, rotted and overgrown. Slender spires took form above it, some of them snapped off like broken spears. Roofless towers appeared and disappeared, thrusting blindly upward. Halls and galleries drifted past. Graceful buttresses, delicate arches, fluted columns, terraces, and bowers, all ruined, all desolate, all fallen. The gray moss grew thickly here, covering the fallen stones and great mounds and bearding all the towers. Black vines crept in and out of windows, through doors and over archways, up the sides of high stone walls. The fog concealed three-quarters of the palace— but what they glimpsed was more than enough for Tyrion to know that this island fastness had been ten times the size of the Red Keep once, and a hundred times more beautiful. He knew where he was. The Palace of Love, he said softly. That was the Rhoynar name, said Halden Halfmaester. But for a thousand years, this has been the Palace of Sorrow. And so Tyrion's glimpses of the remnants of the ancient Rhoynar world elicit a haunting sense of regret, a reminder that even the mightiest civilization will one day vanish to ghosts, broken statues and dust, bringing to mind Ozymandias, Percy Bysshe Shelley's poem about the ephemeral nature of power and civilization, which concludes, Nothing beside remains, round the decay, of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Pulled into a darkly contemplative mood by what he'd witnessed, Tyrion thinks, The ruin was sad enough, but knowing what it had been made it even sadder. 
There was laughter here once, Tyrion thought. There were gardens, bright with flowers and fountains sparkling golden in the sun. These steps once rang to the sound of lovers' footsteps, and beneath that broken dome, marriages beyond count were sealed with a kiss. And by all counts, Tyrion is correct in his estimations. Once the Rhoynish civilization thrived in arts and crafts and culture, and in our study of their downfall, we shouldn't forget who the Rhoynish once were, and might still be, if it were not for the interference of Valyria's conquering dragons. In its heyday, the Rhoynar boasted a network of city-states that, while being bound by blood and culture, were otherwise fiercely independent. The Rhoynish civilization had grown from its initial settlements to a true force to be reckoned with. The World Book tells us that along their banks had arisen a civilization and culture as storied and ancient as the old empire of Gis. The Rhoynar had grown rich off the bounty of their river. Mother Rhoyne, they named her. But before we explore this flourishing culture in further detail, and with the mention of Old Gis, it's worth considering what was going on around other parts of Essos in order to gain a wider perspective of the political issues facing the Rhoynar. While we don't get any sort of estimate as to the age of the Rhoynish civilization, we do know that it was thriving during the time the Andals were still residing in the northwest of Essos thousands of years ago. These two peoples living in close proximity is fascinating for a variety of reasons. Yeah, while the Andals were noted to have engaged in war with various other tribes in the area, including the Hairy Men, whom they drove out of Andalos before establishing the area as their home, the Rhoynar are described as a largely peaceful people by Andal. It says a lot about the Rhoynar during this period, then, that they apparently never came into large-scale conflict with the Andals. One would imagine that the Andals, having settled and spread around Andalos, drawing cultural inspiration from their new religion called the Faith of the Seven, would make frightening neighbors. However, as far as history informs us, the Rhoyna did not fight wars with the Andals. Admittedly, one factor is that the Andals chose to fight among themselves in a fractured land of petty kingdoms. But otherwise, the takeaway is that the Rhoyna, whilst being passive to some extent, were then a sprawling civilization viewed as too large to be messed with. Yandel tells us that the Rhoynar could be formidable when roused to wrath, as many a would-be Andal conqueror learned to their sorrow. So it seems that after some ill-advised attempt to test the Rhoynish resolve, the Andals soon learned that such machinations would only lead to defeat. Given that the Andals up sticks across the narrow sea anywhere from between two and 6,000 years before the start of the main story, having settled in Andalos for ages before that, we can surmise that these two people spent thousands of years in close proximity. Little did either know that their futures lay side by side in Westeros. Just as the Andors were ultimately content to respect the Rhoynish borders, the Rhoynar never sought to expand westward. The central reason for their lack of ambition to conquer surrounding areas was that they were culturally bound to their sacred river, Mother Rhoyne, content to reside along her banks in relative peace. 
So if there was little tendency for conflict between the two civilizations, who were both well populated and more than capable of conquest, then what did their relationship look like? One interesting aspect to this history is that it seems likely that the Roinar taught the Andals how to work iron, which becomes a hugely significant point in Westerosi history further down the timeline. While the World Book tells us the first civilization to work iron was an ancient grassland culture called the Chimeri, the Roinar were also noted for their craft. Whether the Chimeri tidbit alludes to a Roinar origin story, or the skill of ironworking was passed on to the Roinar by their ancient neighbors in the grasslands, or if the Roinar developed ironworking independently, remains a mystery. But what we can be certain of is the fact that, at one stage in ancient times, the Roinar excelled at the craft of ironworking, while other budding civilizations were lacking this important knowledge. Yeah, not only did the first men seem to lack ironworking technology when they emigrated to Westeros, but there are significant hints that both the Andals and the Valyrians learned the craft from the Roinar. While the more pious version of history declares that the Andals gained this invaluable knowledge from the Seven in some divine moment of teaching, Yandel notes... The Roinar were already an advanced civilization at this time, and they too knew of iron, so it takes only the study of a map to realize that the earliest Andals must have had contact with the Roinar. The Darkwash and the Noin lay directly in the path of the Andals' migration, and there are remnants of Roinish outposts in Andalos, according to the Norvoshi historian Doro Galathis and it would not be the first time that men learned of the working of iron from the Roinar. And so the notion that the Roinar might have taught their neighbours how to forge improved weapons seems to be well documented, and perhaps indicates that they were a trusting people, comfortable sharing knowledge with their neighbours. While we might scoff at the Roinar's naivete here, the historical accounts are so vague we cannot be sure of the precise timing or circumstances, and we're left to wonder if there was essential knowledge flowing the other way in exchange. Perhaps the Roinar hoped that with iron swords the Andals might clear out some bothersome tribes that lay between them. It's impossible to say, but interesting to speculate. Regardless, what's certain is that the Andals saw the value of ironworking and refined the craft to forge formidable blades that easily outmatched the cast bronze equivalents of earlier cultures. Although the Andals began testing these improved weapons on each other as their petty kings vied for power, eventually the expertise would become essential when they were faced with the daunting task of gaining a foothold in a Westeros thickly populated by first men. By then, the Andals had advanced from iron to steel, creating far superior weapons to the swords wielded by the First Men, who were, by and large, still in their Bronze Age. And so, the Andal invasion of Westeros, which was eventually so successful they came to dominate the continent, owes much and more to the craftsmanship and expertise of the Roinar that had at one time in history remained arcane. Ultimately, the knowledge was passed on to the Andals, and the result was a dramatic shift in power in Westeros, giving the Andals the literal edge that led to them establishing dominance. 
and there's also evidence of the Roynar putting their advanced weaponry to good use themselves. The World Book tells us of the history of Norvos along the Noin tributary, which was settled by an ancient unknown people. These people were driven out of Norvos by the hairy men from the east, who are thought to be close kin of the Ebenese. Yandol tells us that these invaders in turn were expelled by the fabled prince of Nisar, Garris the Grey, but the Roinar did not linger, preferring the more temperate climes of the lower river to the dark skies and cold winds of the hills. So there we have an example of Roinar aggression towards a tribe they might have considered troublesome, showing that while largely peaceful, they were by no means bound by pacifism. And the resolve of the Rhoynar would later be severely tested by the Valyrian freehold, as we're going to see today. For now, we should consider the pertinent background and geography here. Thousands of years ago, the Giscari Empire was waxing in power. This became a big problem for many other factions in Essos, because they were an aggressive empire that embraced slavery to the extent they made an art of it. With the blood and toil of slaves, they built their pyramids, expanded their borders, and populated their armies until they were the primary force of aggression in eastern Essos. Their ferocious and highly organised lockstep legions were renowned soldiers, feared and respected in equal measure, giving their military the advantage necessary to defeat any foe on the battlefield. From the perspective of the Rhoynar, one factor that kept them safe from this threat was simple geography. The Giscari Empire was centered around the city of Old Gis, all the way east in Slaver's Bay. That put a lot of distance between the two civilizations, which might explain why the Giscari never took on the Rhoynar. But distance didn't stop the Giscari colonizing Sothorios, the inhospitable continent down to the south, and so perhaps the defensive strength of the Roinar should not be discounted as a reason why the Giscari didn't chance them. They had managed to live alongside the Gandals for an extended period without ceding an inch of territory, and so perhaps the Giscari knew better than to rouse the Roinar on their own turf. As well as the Roinar being masters of the river, it should also be noted that the Giscari of that time fought with inferior bronze swords. So altogether, there's a host of reasons why the Giscari did not make it to the Rhoyne and instead chose to subjugate their neighbours and colonise other far-flung areas of the map. But consider this for a second. Not only were the Rhoynar seemingly out of reach of Old Gis, but the Andals were too. Given the Rhoyne runs almost from north to south, any force seeking to invade Andalos from the east must first travel through the Rhoynish land, then cross the formidable river. And these factors must have made the Andals feel very safe from Giscari expansion. Altogether, the Andals could count on their neighbours as a buffer. It would take a supreme force to take on the Rhoynar on their own turf and then penetrate further west, so in that respect, we'd say the Andals must have been glad to have neighbours that were not only content to exist within their own borders, but who were also effectively offering them safety due to their geographical location, providing a literal barrier to invaders from the east. But as Old Gis reached the pinnacle of their power, somewhere in the very vague timeline of five to 8,000 years ago, 
the fate of Essos changed dramatically when an ostensibly harmless race of shepherds on the peninsula of Valyria found, or perhaps engineered, dragons and subsequently learned to tame them. If you want to hear more on this intriguing aspect of Essosi history, then we'd refer you to our episode 73, All About Dragons, and we'll be sure to also cover some of this in the next instalment of the series, focusing on the Targaryen conquest of Westeros. For now, we can summarise by saying that the taming of dragons gave such an incredible advantage to the shepherds that before long they were building an empire of their own that would come to be known as the Freehold, centred around the volcanic network in Valyria known as the Fourteen Flames, the very place they first tamed their dragons. So rapid was the Valyrian rise to dominance that they were soon at loggerheads with the Giscari Empire to their east, who presided over vast armies but lacked dragons. Given Valyria's relatively close proximity to Old Gis and the expansionist nature of the Giscari, perhaps these two factions were natural enemies. Things came to a head during what's known as the First Giscari War. Here the dragon lords of Valyria set their flying, fire-breathing beasts against the famed Giscari lockstep legions. Records are scant, but we can assume that the Giscari had far superior numbers of personnel and were certainly well prepared in matters of war. Yet as we've seen in Westerosi history, dragons make dangerous foes, difficult to defend against and capable of roasting thousands of soldiers with a single swoop from the sky. It stands as testament to the obscene power of dragons that the Valyrians, relative newcomers to the Empire business, were able to overcome their foe in the First Giscari War, winning a resounding victory. However, not to be dismayed and not about to relinquish power, the Giscari kept their empire together. Unable to strike a chord of diplomacy, the two factions went to war again and again and again, and each time during the first four Giscari wars, Old Gis found themselves defeated, although it's noted in the annals that they did at least win some battles. Finally, conflict broke out once more, and the fifth and last Giscari war commenced. This time, the Valyrians sought to end the struggle permanently, inflicting a fatal defeat on the Giscari by turning Old Gis into a ruin and sowing their soil with salt to destroy their ability to farm, ensuring the city and the empire it presided over would never again rise to power. And so the Valyrians proved that even the most massive human armies were no match for the firepower of dragons, a lesson that Westeros would one day learn when Aegon Rhaenys and Visenya Targaryen displayed the full might of their mounts at the Field of Fire. And so while Valyria went from strength to strength after humbling its main enemy, the other civilizations of Essos trembled, knowing that without dragons, they too could end up like old Gis. Having dragons was one thing, but having dragons when nobody else did gave Valyria a supreme advantage. While the defeat of old Gis must have been celebrated around Essos, given their terrible culture of slavery... The Valyrians in turn kept the trade in human flesh alive by adopting the practice they had learned from their foe. 
as a relatively new empire that had shot to power after generations of humble sheep farming. The Valyrians perhaps were unprepared for empiredom. Perhaps this was why they mimicked the worst habits of old Gis. And so they went from being a target of slavery to being slavers themselves. With dragons in their arsenal, the reality was that the Valyrian freehold had become an unstoppable machine that grew to depend on an ever-growing population of slaves to keep the engine turning. Once you begin venturing down that bloodthirsty path, it's difficult to turn back because free labour becomes ingrained in the political and economic system. To outline the depths of evil baked into Valyrian culture, the author gives us an account of those days from a slave's point of view via the Bravosi known as the Kindly Man. When telling Arya Stark about the origins of Bravos and his order of the Faceless Men, he explains that We first took root in Valyria amongst the wretched slaves who toiled in the deep mines beneath the fourteen flames that lit the Freehold's nights of old. Most mines are dank and chilly places, cut from cold dead stone, but the fourteen flames were living mountains with veins of molten rock and hearts of fire. So the mines of old Valyria were always hot, and they grew hotter as the shafts were driven deeper, ever deeper. The slaves toiled in an oven. The rocks around them were too hot to touch. The air stank of brimstone and would sear their lungs as they breathed it. The soles of their feet would burn and blister, even through the thickest sandals. Sometimes, when they broke through a wall in search of gold, they would find steam instead, or boiling water, or molten rock. Certain shafts were cut so low that the slaves could not stand upright, but had to crawl or bend. And there were worms in that red darkness too. And so what must the relatively peaceful, culturally introverted Roinar have thought when the Valyrians first defeated Old Gis, then became a slaver culture themselves? We mentioned earlier that one aspect that had saved the Roinar from a fierce confrontation with the Giscari was geography. As we said, Old Gis was situated far to the east, and so it would have taken tremendous effort for them to transport forces to the banks of the Rhoyne, where the Roinar would have held the home advantage. But against Valyria, these geographic advantages were diminished. Not only was Valyria closer to the Rhoyne than Old Gis had been, but their dragons didn't face the same logistical problems of a lockstep legion or a siege engine. From the sky, the Valyrians could strike anywhere at any time and disappear before their victims could organize a response. And so while, as we said, the Rhoynar must have delighted to hear Old Gis was on its knees... As the old saying goes, be careful what you wish for. The Valyrians had become an equally immoral yet far more terrifying alternative. And once Old Gis fell, there was no other major force to balance the power in Essos and keep Valyria at bay. Now, the two biggest factions were the Valyrians and the Rhoynar. And we'll pick up this thread later when we focus on the conflict that would inevitably rise between them. 
In discussing how the Roinar came to find themselves sharing a continent with the Dragon Lords, we shouldn't forget a point we raised earlier as we try to get back on a cultural track here that not only did the Roinar share their knowledge of metalworking with the Andals, they did the same with the Valyrians. Yandel states, It is said that the Valyrians learned the art of ironworking from them as well, although the Valyrians eventually surpassed them. And so, when we think of Valyrian steel, which seems like such an important metal in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire, we must imagine that the earliest experiments to forge such blades began with the knowledge the Valyrians gained from the Roinar. Valyrian steel no doubt requires magic and dragon fire in its production, and perhaps human sacrifice as well, to make a fantasy version of Damascus steel from our world, lighter than conventional steel and holding a sharper edge. Again we see that Roinar craftsmanship culture has had an indirect yet major impact on Westeros and the main story with Ned Stark's ice, the fateful cat's paw dagger and a host of other weapons and items owing their existence in part due to the ancient Roinar who worked their forges along the river and shared their expertise with other cultures. And when the Roinar eventually settled in Dawn, quote, their artisans, metal workers and stonemasons brought skills far in advance of those achieved by their Westerosi counterparts, and their armourers were soon producing swords and spears and suits of scale and plate no Westerosi smith could hope to match. And more on that later. So it's clear that the Roinar were skilled people who took pride in their craft, The notion that they were a folksy and uncomplicated river folk is therefore somewhat oversimplified because by all accounts they seem to have been highly creative, learned, and industrious. And aside from their metal and stone crafts, there was another skill in which they excelled, magic. As Yandel describes it, art and music flourished in the cities of the Rhoyne, and it is said their people had their own magic a water magic very different from the sorceries of Valyria, which were woven of blood and fire. One thing we've seen in A Song of Ice and Fire is how fire magicians use flame readings to see the future. Red priests Melisandre and Makoro are both able to look into the flames and snatch a glimpse of tomorrow. Well, it might be that the ancient Roinar were able to pull off a similar trick with water. The World Book tells us, It was said the mother Roin herself whispered to her children of every threat. Furthermore, the Roinar were apparently able to magically raise parts of the river itself as a form of defence. It says, Their cities were protected by watery walls that would rise to drown any foe. Altogether, the Roynish water witches and wizards apparently knew how to turn their beloved Mother Roin into a weapon, or at least a shield, among other advantageous magical skills. And a lot more on that later, when we'll see all of this put to use. The fact that Roynish magic revolves around water once again emphasizes how inseparable their culture was from the river. It's no surprise, then, that the religion of the Roinar was also river-centric. 
As Princess Arianne says to Aerys Okar in the Queenmaker chapter of A Feast for Crows, the mother in their songs is not our mother, but Mother Roin, whose waters nourished them from the dawn of days. And so it seems the mother in ancient Roinish terms is an incarnation of the river itself. There's also a mention of lesser gods, specifically the Crab King and the Old Man of the River, the latter of which refers to sacred giant river turtles viewed as consorts to Mother Roin herself. When the Long Night occurred around 8,000 years ago in Westeros, its terror even reached as far as the Roin, leading to the Roinar speculating if their crab and turtle gods caused the disharmony. Yandol says... Lomas Longstrider, in his Wonders Made by Man, recounts meeting descendants of the Roinar in the ruins of the festival city of Croyan, who have tales of a darkness that made the Roin dwindle and disappear, her waters frozen as far south as the joining of the Saloru. According to these tales, the return of the sun came only when a hero convinced Mother Roin's many children, lesser gods such as the Crab King and the Old Man of the River, to put aside their bickering and join together to sing a secret song that brought back the day. As well as religious beliefs that gave the Roinar a unique identity, they were also cultural traditions that defined who they were. One of their central tenets was equality between men and women. While, for example, the first men and the Andals primarily practiced male primogeniture and had corresponding patriarchal traditions, the Roinar were different. Men and women warriors would fight side by side on the battlefield, and each independent city under the Roinish banner was led by either a prince or princess. Yandel concludes that amongst these river folk, women were regarded as the equals of men. And so we can see in this sense they were culturally progressive. The same can be said of their views on homosexuality, which was widely accepted and not stigmatized. And of course, these values were carried with them to Westeros when they landed in Dorne, which we'll see later. Finally, having discussed the culture and history of the Roinar, we should mention their appearance. Although it's difficult to describe the ancient Roinar, given they settled the river thousands of years ago, we can surely take a large clue from the description of the Salty Dornishman. Maester Yandos says, The Salty Dornishman of the coasts, dark-haired and lithe and olive-skinned, have the queerest customs and the most Roinish blood. And it's later noted in the World Book that there's a potential historical link between the Roinar and the people of Mir due to the similarity of their appearance. The World Book states, The Mir men are believed by certain maesters to be akin to the Roinar, as many of them share the same olive skin and dark hair as the river people, but this supposed link is likely spurious. Finally, to give an impression of their soldiers, Yandel describes the Roinish warrior with his silver-scaled armour, fish-head helm, tall spear, and turtle-shell shield. And so there we have an image of the Roinar, who populated their riverbanks for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years, concentrating on their arts and craft rather than engaging in large-scale war or seeking to expand their borders. These people were shaped by the Roin, living off the bounty and protection of the river and thriving to become one of the largest and most successful populations in the known world. However, 
History has shown us that no civilization lasts forever, and so in the next segment, we'll consider how the rise of Valyria signaled the beginning of the end for the Rhoynish civilization beside their sacred river. As those first Valyrian outposts grew into towns and those towns into cities, however, some Rhoynar came to regret the forbearance of their fathers. Amity gave way to enmity, particularly upon the lower river where the ancient city of Sarmel and the walled Valyrian town Volmon Theris faced each other across the waters, and on the shores of the Summer Sea where the free city of Volantis soon rivaled the storied port of Sarhoi each of them commanding one of Mother Roin's four mouths. Picking up where we left off in the discussion about the rise of Valyria, there came a point following the fall of Old Gis where Valyria and the Roinar were the two largest civilizations in western Essos. But whereas the Roinar were more than satisfied to exist along the banks of their great river, the Valyrians adopted an aggressive policy of expansionism. As such, Valyrians began to explore other parts of Essos in the hopes of founding city-states that would add to their might. Obviously, they needed to settle good land near fresh water, and so the River Rhoyne must have seemed as appealing to them as it had to those early Rhoynish settlers thousands of years prior. And sure enough, the Valyrians decided that those vast riverbanks were the perfect place to establish new outposts. In our recent episodes on the Children of the Forest and the First Men, we discussed the uncomfortable dynamics between settlers and native populations that George was commenting on in the original migration. The native children of the forest initially welcomed the waves of first men settlers in the belief there was room enough for all and that a peaceful coexistence was possible. In the end, though, both parties had different needs that brought them into conflict. And as the first man began to expand, the native culture was threatened, leading to a clash of cultures and ultimately widespread war. And George echoes similar dynamics in his portrayal of Valyrian expansion into Rhoynar territory. Yandel tells us that when adventurers, exiles, and traders from the freehold of Valyria began to expand beyond the lands of the long summer in the centuries after the fall of the empire of Old Gis, the Rhoynish princes embraced them at first, and their priests declared that all men were welcome to share the bounty of Mother Rhoyne. But this warm-hearted philosophy of welcoming acceptance with the goal of coexistence didn't last for long, as Valeria's expansionism into western Essos turned out to be as relentless as the first men's in Westeros. In time, the Roinar came to realise they had been naive to welcome their new neighbours so warmly. The tiny Valyrian settlements along the Rhoyne began to grow and soon became bustling towns that then became cities. Before long, the plentiful space between the Rhoynar and the Valyrians along the river was populated by ever-growing numbers of incomers, bringing both cultures together side by side. This is when the incompatibility between the two peoples began to show. As the World Book puts it, some Roinar came to regret the forbearance of their fathers. Amity gave way to enmity. The areas in the far south were the most troubled. 
The Valyrians settled a town called Volantheris along the west bank of the Rhoyne, opposite the Rhoynar city of Sarmel. When the Valyrians built a wall around their city, in contrast to Sarmel's open beauty, alarm bells must have rung for the locals. Thinking back to the Children of the Forest situation with the First Men, the initial friction came from the fact that the native populations required forests and the newcomers required farms. On a basic existential level, the two factions had opposing needs, perhaps making conflict inevitable. But the final spark of war came from something more cultural. Fearing that the children were spying on them via their magical weirwood trees, the first men began felling the sacred trees that were a central aspect of the children's culture and religion. For this, the children went to war, even though their foe had far superior weapons. And again, there are echoes of the children's plight in the depiction of the friction between Valeria and the Roynar. The Roynar's lifestyle was dependent on the bounty of the river that the Valyrians were now drawing from, putting the two factions at loggerheads. And once more, cultural factors provided the initial spark of conflict. With rivalries becoming increasingly heated, the first outbreak of war began when inhabitants of Volontheris caught and butchered one of the old man of the river giant turtles that the native culture held as sacred. To the Valyrians, the slaughter of a turtle represented a good meal for the ever-growing number of hungry mouths they needed to feed in order to sustain their burgeoning town. But for the Roina, this represented sacrilege, an affront to their religion, similar to the children and their weirwoods, that was significant enough to draw them into open conflict. The first turtle war, as it's referred to in the annals, did not last long, less than a moon's turn, in fact. As we mentioned, the Valyrians were savvy enough to build walled fortifications around their towns and cities, having survived extended wars with the Giscari, but we guess that the Roinar had lived so long without war that they were less practiced defensively. Consequently, Volontheris had little difficulty in raiding and torching Sarmel. However, let's not forget that despite the Roinar's passivity, they were, quote, fearsome when roused to wrath. They retaliated for the invasion of Sarmel and called upon their water wizards. These magicians raised the river to flood Volontheris, reportedly wiping away half of the city. Whereas the Valyrians had used fire to attack Sarmel, the Roina had used water. The first victory in the Roinish Wars was theirs. Nevertheless, the war was short, and though none is noted, we wonder if there was any attempt at diplomacy between the two factions. The reality was that the Roinar were culturally bound to their river, and the Valyrians were too deeply invested in expansion to back down. And so, further conflict followed. Maester Yandel notes that there was the War of Three Princes, the Second Turtle War, the Fisherman's War, the Salt War, the Third Turtle War, the War on Dagger Lake, the Spice War and many more too numerous to recount here. And so we're left to imagine what the causes of these wars were, but titles such as the Second and Third Turtle Wars and the Spice War do give us clues. Altogether, the conflict up and down the river owed much to the cultural incompatibility we've discussed and led to cities either being burned by the Valyrians or flooded by the Roinar. 
But while the First Turtle War might serve as a vague indication as to how these wars were fought, one key difference noted by Yandel is that the Valyrians eventually gained the upper hand, quote, emerging as victors more often than not. It's also noted that thousands of people were killed or enslaved. And of course, the more slaves the Valyrians took, the stronger their freehold became. Add to that, the network of Valyrian colonies began to work together and coordinate attacks, as they had no doubt learned to do in the Giscari Wars. In contrast, the Rhoynar didn't function as one unit. The Rhoynar cities were led by princes and princesses and were noted to be fiercely independent, too proud to ally with one another. So perhaps it's not a surprise that the Rhoynar suffered the greatest damage in the two and a half centuries that these battles raged. But it was during the Second Spice War that conflict headed to a climax. South of Sarmel and Volontheris, around the southern Essosi coast, lay the Rhoynish port city of Sarhoi and the Valyrian free city Volantis. Each was built on a separate mouth of the Rhoyne, and the two cities were steeped in rivalry. Yandel tells us that things took a dramatic turn when three Valyrian dragonlords joined with their kin and cousins in Volantis to overwhelm, sack and destroy Sarhoi, the great Rhoynar port city upon the Summer Sea. The warriors of Sarhoi were slaughtered savagely, their children carried off into slavery, and their proud pink city put to the torch. Afterward, the Volantines sowed the smoking ruins with salt so that Sarhoi might never rise again. And so the Valyrians really upped the ante here. Not satisfied with a victory, they attacked in full force, enslaved children, and destroyed Sarhoi for good. Here, they didn't just fight as a colony, but called upon the might of the Freehold to unleash terror. Finally, dragons had entered the fray. In the Volantis section of the World Book, we see the long-term consequences of that dragon power. Yandel says, Though the dragon lords of Valyria won the victory, it's rightly said that Volantis was the principal beneficiary. Sarhoi remains in ruins to this day, a desolate and haunted place, whilst Volantis, with its long bridge and black walls and huge harbour, ranks amongst the great cities of the world. Shocked by the no-holds-barred attitude of their foe, devastated by the ruin of one of their most beautiful cities, and fearful of further enslavement, the Rhoynar finally joined forces in the hopes they could defend their land together and drive out the Valyrians. Prince Garin of Croyan declared that, We shall all be slaves unless we join together to end this threat. The other Rhoynish leaders agreed to the alliance, although there was one dissenting voice. Princess Nymeria of Nisar was of the opinion that the war was unwinnable now that dragons were part of the equation, although the other princes paid no heed and overruled her. Given Nisar's own warriors dedicated themselves to the alliance, Nymeria eventually joined her strength to the common cause. But it's an interesting detail that even at this very early stage, Nymeria might have been planning to migrate as the Andals had done with great success. It would be extremely interesting to know what her early plans were, but alas, we're left to guess. 
As the one who had inspired the Great Alliance, Prince Garin rose to a role of leadership. He gathered the might of the Roinar together in Croyane, fielding the largest army in Essos that's said to have boasted a quarter of a million men. This brings to mind real-world history when Caraticus joined the British tribes together in the first century AC in order to fend off the legions of the Roman invaders. And in story, we might think of free folk leader Mance Raider uniting his people north of the Wall. It seems Garin's great plan was to go all in with one huge army and stay in close proximity to the river where water magic could be utilised to nullify the threat of dragon flame. The problem was, given he'd gathered every man of fighting age together, if they were defeated, the Roynish civilization would be on its knees. He must have felt this was a risk worth taking, the only way in which the Roynar could defeat Valyria. Once Garin had assembled his host, he split it into three parts. One army marched down the eastern bank of the river, another did the same on the west bank and the final group crewed a huge fleet of war galleys that scoured the waters in between. Garin's plan was to march and sail southward in unison, destroying any Valyrian settlements along the way. And the quest began successfully enough. First, Garin overwhelmed a 30,000-man Valyrian army and took Seloris by storm. Next, he took Valassar, using similar methods, gathering momentum with his second successive victory. The third victory came at Volontheris, the city that had sparked the first Turtle War hundreds of years prior. Here, Garin's troops defeated a host of a 100,000, including three dragon lords, which was no mean feat. The Roynish water wizards manipulated the Roin itself to produce massive spouts of water that dismayed the dragons. As a result, the Roynish archers were able to bring down two of their dragons and injured the third, who fled defeated. Then the wizards flooded the city. Despite the huge cost to Roynish troops, all of those thousands of soldiers killed in ground combat or burned by dragon flame, Prince Garin had secured a resounding victory. As Yendel puts it, thereafter, men began to name the victorious prince Garin the Great, and it is said that in Volantis, great lords trembled in terror as his host advanced. Rather than face him in the field, the Volantines retreated back behind their black walls, and appealed to the Freehold for help. Unfortunately for Garin and the Roinar, his victory was to be short-lived, as the mighty Freehold obliged. In the pages of the main series, Danny's three dragons are still maturing, so we've yet to witness their full potential firepower. But there is significant backstory to show us what dragons can do. When Arya Stark arrives at Harrenhal in A Clash of Kings, she sees a blackened building, quote, as scarred as it was massive, its stones fissured and discoloured, and recalls old Nan's story of when the stone had melted and flowed like candle wax. This was the work of one single dragon, Beleriand the Black Dread, ridden by Aegon the Conqueror during his attack of the castle in order to defeat Harren the Black, who was roasted alive along with his family and retainers. 
And so imagine the scene when the Valyrian freehold answered Volantis's distress call by sending not one, not three, but 300 dragons to take on the Rhoynish army. While Balerion might be the largest and fiercest dragon since the conquest, capable of bathing whole towns in shadow when soaring above them, there may have been dragons as large or larger belonging to the Freehold. You'd imagine among a flight of dragons boasting numbers of 300, there were dragons of all shapes and sizes, and bear in mind that this was Valyria in its heyday, and that those dragon lords probably had advanced knowledge on dragon rearing and control that might have been partially lost since the doom. If the Roinar had assembled one of the biggest armies of all time, Valyria was now unleashing an attacking force barely imaginable in response. And as you'd expect, the scale and devastation of the coordinated counterattack overwhelmed the Roinar. While they'd managed to defend themselves admirably against three dragons, 300 was a very different matter. Yandal tells us that against their fires, the Roinar could not stand. Tens of thousands burned whilst others rushed into the river, hoping that the embrace of Mother Roin would offer them protection against dragon flame, only to drown in their mother's embrace. Some chroniclers insist that the fires burned so hot that the very waters of the river boiled and turned to steam. At Volantheris, water had overcome fire, but here in Volantis, Dragonflame was the victor. Garen the Great was captured alive and forced to witness the rout. In the meantime, his soldiers were shown no mercy, and the Volantines and Valyrians sought to end the Rhoynish resistance for good, as they had done with the Giscari. They slaughtered thousands of Garen's troops, quote, so many that it was said their blood turned the great harbor of Volantis red as far as the eye could see. While Garen had kicked off his master plan by marching south from Croyan down the Rhoyne and eventually to Volantis, the Valyrians conversely moved from Volantis north towards Croyan. Along the way, they sacked Sarmel, turning the city into a ruin. Then they continued north to arrive in Croyan, where they aimed to make a resounding statement. This was Prince Garin's own city, so for maximum effect, the Valyrians locked him in a golden cage and forced him to observe Croyan's destruction. The invaders then routed the city, killing the adults and carrying the children off into slavery. However, legend has it that Prince Garin gained some measure of revenge for the atrocities he witnessed. Yandel tells us that the prince, it is said, called down a curse upon the conquerors, entreating Mother Roin to avenge her children. And so, that very night, the Roin flooded out of season and with greater force than was known in living memory. A thick fog full of evil humors fell, and the Valyrian conquerors began to die of grayscale. And the destruction of Croyan links to the main story in several ways. First, there's the ruin of the once great city we discussed in the last segment, which is given exposition when Tyrion Lannister travels down the Rhoyne. Then there's this origin story for Greyscale. On his way through the sorrows, Tyrion passes through the fog and under the mysterious Bridge of Dream, 
one of the biggest bridges in the world before its destruction. The passage goes, The Bridge of Dream, Griff named it. There will be stone men on the span. Some may start to wail at our approach, but they are not like to molest us. Most stone men are feeble creatures, clumsy, lumbering, witless. Near the end, they all go mad, but that is when they are most dangerous. If need be, fend them off with the torches. On no account, let them touch you. Stone eyes are blind eyes, Tyrion thought. The mortal form of grayscale began in the extremities he knew. A tingling in a fingertip, a toenail turning black, a loss of feeling. As the numbness crept into the hand or stole past the foot and up the leg, the flesh stiffened and grew cold and the victim's skin took on a greyish hue resembling stone. He had heard it said there were three good cures for grayscale, axe and sword and cleaver. Hacking off afflicted parts did sometimes stop the spread of the disease, Tyrion knew, but not always. Many a man had sacrificed one arm or foot only to find the other going grey. Once that happened, hope was gone. Blindness was common when the stone reached the face. In the final stages, the curse turned inwards to muscles, bones and inner organs. And to this day, Garen's curse, as it is known, is believed to hold sway at the sorrows. At first, the shy maid passes the bridge of dream without issue, but then further down the river, inexplicably, they encounter the bridge of dream again. This time, the stone men attack the boat, and Tyrion narrowly avoids contracting grayscale while fending off three infected men. Yet his travel companion, Griff, or John Connington, as he's known under his blue-haired disguise, isn't so lucky, and later in his point of view, we see him hiding his affliction as he begins his campaign to win the Iron Throne for his foster son, young Griff, an apparent Targaryen in disguise. The reader's left to wonder what Connington's grayscale means for both his personal story and the fate of his invasion of Westeros. If Connington does go on to play the role of a patient zero, sparking a mass outbreak of grayscale in Westeros, we should remember that, according to legend at least, it was Garen the Great who first called down this curse to spite the Valyrians. It's a great strength of George's world-building that not only does he present intriguing ancient histories, but manages to deftly link them to the current story, which really makes the world feel lived in. And as for Garin, we should consider his moniker of the Great. While he was given that name following his initial series of victories over the Valyrians, ultimately his campaign to take the fight to the Dragonlords ended in disaster, with thousands of Rhoynar being slaughtered or burned in battle, and many others captured into slavery. And while ostensibly it might be easy to cry... Garen should have listened to wise Nymeria and evacuated the Rhoyne rather than fight. In reality, the position the Rhoynar found themselves in was more complex. At that point, the Rhoynar civilization was truly massive, and a mass migration would have been difficult to say the least. Besides logistical issues, you'd need to find a destination that would immediately provide enough sustenance for an entire population. It's true that their former neighbors, the Andals, successfully pulled off a mass migration of their own, perhaps also inspired by the threat of Valyria, but they had to invade Westeros with a conviction to aggression that wasn't in keeping with Rhoynish traditions. 
What's more is that, as we've discussed, the Roinar were culturally bound to their mother river. Even if Garin or Nymeria had tried to order a mass evacuation early on, we doubt very many of the Roinar would have listened. In this sense, it took the attack of 300 dragons to really get the message across that this war was unwinnable. And so it's difficult to evaluate Garin as a leader because the truth was that the Roinar were in a bind. Perhaps he was both heroic and foolish in his attempt to defy the might of Valyria. But one thing's for certain, the Roinar did, and still do, consider the man great. For them, he represented the stubborn, uncompromising defiance that would be continued in spirit when Dorne came to resist the power of Targaryen rule in Westeros, for generations refusing to submit and become part of a united kingdom. The Dornish, many with Roinar blood in their veins, fought Valyrian dragons again through multiple wars in Westeros, no doubt inspired by the exploits of Garin the Great. In fact, during the main story, Garin's name is brought up in the context of Ariane's Queenmaker plot to crown Princess Marcella according to Dornish custom, rather than Westerosi law. Ariane's accomplice, her milk brother Garin, says, Prince Oberyn told about Prince Garin, I remember, the one that I was named for. Andre Dult replies, Garin the Great, the wonder of the Roin. That's the one, says Garin. He made Valyria tremble. So, while Garin led the old Roinar to their doom, we can see that he left behind an inspirational legacy that inhabits the Dornish collective psyche to this day. Yet, following his defeat, it was left to another Roinish leader, Nymeria of Nisar, the original dissenter, to attempt to save her people and her culture. And so, in the next segment, we'll look at the story of Nymeria and her 10,000 ships as the Roinar found themselves fleeing their mother Roin in order to survive. And now, at the midpoint of the episode, it's time for us to thank our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Thanks to Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Oxheart, Blythe Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabot the Unfrozen, David Dean, James K, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Maester Paul Capuano, Mark, Boss, Schwartz the Black, the Sothorian, Sally, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, Tim, Magnar of Who's Then, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerliz of Castlenaki, the Alpha Patron. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. G'day listener. My name is Duncan, better known as Valkyrist in the Ice and Fire fandom. 
and I have an exciting announcement to make. I've written a book. It's called Notes from the Citadel, The Philosophy and Psychology of a Song of Ice and Fire. It represents over a decade of writing and talking about this series, having grown out of conversations in forums, podcasts, and fan conventions, as well as my own background in literary analysis and research. The book covers a range of topics, from George R. R. Martin's postmodern approach to the fantasy genre, to the effects of patriarchy, feudalism, and war upon his characters, the phenomenological significance of the others, the metaphysical implications of the three-eyed crow, and the epistemic skirmishes of the ice and fire fandom are also investigated. The analysis combines academic scrutiny with a fervent adoration for Martin's work. While the night may be long and the wait between books grueling, these essays offer a wealth of new insights, granting veteran fans a fresh appreciation and understanding of Martin's story, characters, and writing. Notes from the Citadel will be released on April 16th and is available in both ebook and paperback. You can find it by clicking the link in the episode show notes or by searching Notes from the Citadel on Amazon. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you and on with the show. Higher on the Rhine in Nisar, Princess Nymeria soon received the news of Garin's shattering defeat and the enslavement of the people of Croyane and Sarmel. The same fate awaited her own city, she saw. Accordingly, she gathered every ship that remained upon the Rhine, large or small, and filled them full of as many women and children as they could carry, for almost all the men of fighting age had marched with Garin and died. Down the river, Nymeria led this ragged fleet, past ruined and smoking towns and fields of the dead, through waters choked with bloated floating corpses. To avoid Volantis and its hosts, she chose the older channel and emerged into the summer sea where once Sarhoi had stood. Having defeated the Roynish army at Volantis with their 300 dragons, then sacked the southern cities of Sarmel and Croyan, enslaving thousands of unfortunate captives, the Valyrians looked to continue their onslaught upriver. And the next significant Roynish settlement to the north was the city of Nisar, where the Rhoyne meets the Noyne. Nisar was governed by Princess Nymeria, who had stayed in her city during the conflict. When news of Garin's defeat reached Nisar, she faced a great dilemma. Would she remain in her city beside the Rhoyne and fight a losing battle until her last breath, or would she uproot the remaining Rhoynar and take them away from their beloved river on a journey to nowhere? Wanting to save her people, Nymeria chose the latter option. Most of the Rhoynish men of fighting age had died in Garin's army, so the remaining population was mainly comprised of women and children. She gathered every ship and floating vessel she could find to create a ragtag fleet known to history as the 10,000 ships. Keeping the boats together, Nymeria filled them with her people and set off down the river in a manoeuvre somewhat reminiscent of the British evacuation of Dunkirk during the Second World War, using any vessel available to transport a massive number of people to safety. However, with the Valyrians on the front foot, safety for Nymeria's fleet was by no means guaranteed. They began by navigating the Rhoyne, no doubt picking up extra vessels and Rhoynish citizens as they went. The World Book tells us, 
Down the river, Nymeria led this ragged fleet, past ruined and smoking towns and fields of the dead, through waters choked with bloated floating corpses. To avoid Volantis and its hosts, she chose the older channel and emerged into the summer sea where once Sarhoi had stood. And so Nymeria left her great city behind. In a dance with dragons, when Tyrion sees Nisar, we get this description. The island fell away behind them. Tyrion saw ruins rising along the eastern bank, crooked walls of fallen towers, broken domes and rows of rotted wooden pillars, streets choked by mud and overgrown with purple moss. Another dead city, ten times as large as Goyandrohi. Turtles live there now, big bone snappers. Then, through the twisted, half-drowned trees and wide, wet streets, he glimpsed the silvery sheen of sunlight upon water. Another river he knew at once, rushing toward the Rhoyne. The ruins grew taller as the land grew narrower, until the city ended on a point of land where stood the remains of a colossal palace of pink and green marble, its collapsed domes and broken spires looming large above a row of covered archways. Tyrion saw more snappers sleeping in the slips where half a hundred ships might once have docked. He knew where he was then. This was Nymeria's palace, and this is all that remains of Nisar, her city. Saying goodbye to her beautiful palace and home must have been an agonizing decision, only trumped by leaving her sacred river behind. But Nymeria was focused on survival at all costs, and so led her people away from the Rhoyne and into the Summer Sea. Settling anywhere in western Essos would have been too dangerous, as the reach of the Dragonlords was long. And so Nymeria and her fleet risked the dangerous ocean waters. While legend tells us of the 10,000 ships, scholars at the Citadel question that number. Beldakar, in his tome, History of the Rhoynish Wars, estimated there were a thousand ships, and other scholars offer other numbers. But although the truth is that amid the chaos there was never a true count of numbers, what's certain is that many of the vessels in the fleet were built for the river and not comfortable on the waves. Yandel says, Most were river craft, skiffs and pole boats, trading galleys, fishing boats, pleasure barges, even rafts, their decks and holds crammed full of women and children and old men. Only one in ten was remotely seaworthy, Beldakar insists. And so Nymeria had transported her people from one desperate situation to another. It's said that during the first storm the fleet encountered, a hundred ships met their doom. Other vessels couldn't keep up the pace and were left floundering behind. And all of this struck terror into the hearts of a people who had lived quiet lives along the river for generations. Some turned back to the Rhoyne in search of safety, only to be captured by volunteer slavers. The Rhoynar found themselves truly trapped between a rock and a hard place. Seeking refuge, Nymeria took her people away from the Dragonlord's grasp towards the Basilisk Isles on the other side of the Summer Sea. There they hoped to find food and fresh water while they considered their options. However, once there, the Rhoynar faced further troubles. The Basilisk Isles were a known hideout for Corsairs. 
the local pirate kings took no pity on the refugees and probably couldn't believe their luck that the defenceless fleet full of women and children had rolled up on their shores. These corsairs even put aside their own grievances and rivalries to unite and take full advantage of the Roynar's vulnerability. Yandal tells us, They descended upon the Roynar with fire and sword, putting two-score ships to the torch and carrying off hundreds into slavery. In the aftermath, the Corsairs offered to allow the Roynar to settle upon the Isle of Toads, providing they gave up their boats and sent each king 30 virgin girls and pretty boys each year as tribute. Given Nymeria had fled her home to avoid the threat of slavery, it's no wonder she wasn't about to strike a bargain with the Corsairs. And their offering of allowing the Roynar to settle on the Isle of Toads was insulting in more ways than one. First, the stipulation to provide virgin tributes every year was appalling to someone trying to protect her people. And second, the notion of giving up their ships would have bound them to the Isle of Toads forever. Their very existence would be left to the whims of the Corsairs, who in all likelihood would have continued to mistreat them in unspeakable ways indefinitely and possibly over generations. Altogether, the Basilisk Isles would never be the safe haven they needed. And so Nymeria set sail once more in the hopes of finding a home for her people. The problem was, looking at the map, that there was nowhere close by that they could really turn to. To the north was Valeria, with its mines full of toiling slaves, and so naturally Nymeria looked south, and what lay there was the notoriously inhospitable continent of Sothorios. How much Nymeria knew of Sothorios is open for debate. On one hand, the Roinar were an introverted culture, content by their river, that might not have had explorers of their own. But on the other, as the princess of a large, cultured city, we'd expect that Nymeria was highly educated and privy to worldly information. After all, while Sothorios was at the fringes of civilization, it certainly wasn't beyond the known world, given both Old Gis and Valyria had attempted to colonize the region. But as readers with the benefit of Maester Yandel's insights, we know what sort of place it was. In the Suthorius section of the World Book, he says, Colonies planted here wither and die. Only Zamatar endured for more than a generation. And today even that once great city is a haunted ruin, slowly being reclaimed by the jungle. Slavers, traders and treasure hunters have visited Sothorios over the centuries, but only the boldest ever venture far from their coastal garrisons and enclaves to explore the mysteries of the continent's vast interior. Those that dare, more often not, set forth into the green, never to be seen again. Yandel also walks us through the host of dangers native to the continent. In a discussion about local diseases, he states, Blood boils, green fever, sweet rot, bronze pate, the red death, grayscale, brown leg, worm bone, sailor's bane, pus eye, and yellow gum are only a few of the diseases found here, many so virulent that they've been known to wipe out whole settlements. Archmaester Ebros's study of centuries of travelers' accounts suggests that nine of every ten men visiting Sothorios from Westeros will suffer one or more of these afflictions, and that almost half will die. And if that wasn't enough, there's mention of all manner of carnivorous local fauna. 
unwelcoming and cannibalistic local inhabitants known as the Brindled Men and death from above in the form of bloodthirsty wyverns who Yandel describes as the tyrants of the southern skies. Altogether, Nymeria might have hoped she'd found a large landmass to house her desperate people, but there were reasons why the previous attempts at settlements had failed. And so, while Nymeria was also doomed to fail here, as we said, it's unclear what exactly she knew of this part of the world. Perhaps, feeling like she had nowhere else to turn, Nymeria settled some of her people at Basilisk Point on the northwest coast. But being in close proximity to the Basilisk Isles and those evil corsairs, those settlements were soon raided by slavers who either slaughtered or bound them in chains, never to be seen again. While the jungles of Sothorios were deadly and impenetrable, living along the coast carried its own dangers. Nymeria took other settlers to the river Zamoyos, maybe in the hope her people could return to their traditional lifestyle along its banks. However, the reality of river life in Sothorios included, quote, quicksands, crocodiles, and rotting half-drowned trees. Yandel goes on to list some of the diseases we've mentioned and says, The young and very old proved especially vulnerable to such contagions. Even to splash in the river was to court death, for the Zamoyos was infested with schools of carnivorous fish and tiny worms that lay their eggs in the flesh of swimmers. All that said, Nymeria chose to remain with a contingent of her people at the long-abandoned colony of Zamatar at the mouth of the river. We can imagine that despite being in a ruinous state, there might have been enduring structures that provided some sort of shelter, and it was also a relatively decent spot to moor her ships. But there was also one final location that the Roinar attempted to inhabit. Some way up the river, getting deep into jungle territory, was the ancient city of Yin. While Zamatar was said to have been abandoned for a thousand years, Yin had been empty for far longer. It's such a mysterious city, in fact, that it's impossible to date or even say who originally inhabited the place. All we really know about this city is from this brief sidebar in the World Book. Maesters and other scholars alike have puzzled over the greatest of the enigmas of Sothorios, the ancient city of Yin, a ruin older than time built of oily black stone in massive blocks so heavy that it would require a dozen elephants to move them. Yin has remained a desolation for many thousands of years, yet the jungle that surrounds it on every side has scarce touched it. A city so evil that even the jungle will not enter, Nymeria is supposed to have said when she laid eyes on it, if the tales are true. Every attempt to rebuild or resettle Yin has ended in horror. We'll be focusing more on Sothorius and Yin in an upcoming episode we have planned, but for now we'll conclude that Nymeria's attempt to settle some of her people in this cursed city also ended in horror. After a year of struggling to survive and establish a foothold in this continent, a boat sailed upstream from Zamatar to Yin, only to find every Roynish inhabitant had disappeared. Given the detail that the brindled men liked to feast upon the flesh of strangers and worship obscene gods with obscene rites, we're left to imagine what happened to those vanished Roynish settlers. 
Whatever the case, this was the final horror Nymeria was willing to endure in Sothorios. Soon after, she gathered together what was left of her people and set sail once again. Nymeria's next landing was in Nath, a mysterious island to the northwest of Sothorios, otherwise known as the Isle of Butterflies, in contrast to the slaver corsairs of the Basilisk Isles and the flesh-eating brindled men of the southern continent, the native Nathi population were known for their extreme passivity. Yandel states, The peaceful people, the Nathi, are called by seafarers, for they will not fight even in defense of their homes and persons. The Nathi do not kill, not even beasts of the field and wood. They eat fruit, not flesh, and make music, not war. Of course, we meet a Nathi on page in the main series, Miss Ande, Daenerys' translator who informs Danny about her idyllic island community and its Lord of Harmony. All things considered, Nymeria's Roinar must have been relieved to wash up on those shores and must have thought they'd finally found safe harbour and potentially a new home. However, the refugees soon found a major fly in their ointment, or perhaps we should say, butterfly. Given the noted passive lifestyle of the native population, who are frequently referred to as beautiful and obedient, it might be a mystery then why the entire population hadn't already been carried off into slavery. While there are examples of slavery occurring, case in point, Missande, the former slave, and her brothers, the greater population seemingly has a natural deterrent acting in its favor that has staved off waves of invaders from the Corsairs to the Giscari to the Valyrians. Yandel explains that in spite of frequent incursions, quote, None of these invaders survived, and the Nathi claim that none lasted more than a year, for some evil humor lurks in the very air of this fair isle, and all those who linger too long on Nath soon succumb. Fever is the first sign of this plague, followed by painful spasms that make it seem as if victims are dancing wildly and uncontrollably. In the last stage, the afflicted sweat blood and their flesh sloughs from their bones. The Nazi themselves are seemingly untroubled by this illness. Archmaester Ebro speculates that these apparent evil humours are in fact carried by the Isle's butterflies, a rather poetic defence mechanism that protects the island and its natural inhabitants. And while the slavers have learned to attack only the coasts at night when the butterflies are absent, Nymeria was presumably oblivious to both the affliction and its cause. Residing on the island, it wasn't long before, quote, the god that protects that strange land began to strike down the newcomers by the score with a nameless mortal illness, driving them back to their ships. And so it seems the Lord of Harmony was less welcoming than the peaceful people of Narth. Continuing west, Nymeria's next stop was at the Summer Isles. While the Summer Islanders didn't offer any threat themselves, they also didn't provide the welcome Nymeria would have hoped for. In the Summer Island section of the World Book, we learned that, quote, the princes of the Isles refused to allow her to settle on the larger islands for fear of waking the wrath of Valyria. And so Nymeria landed on a small, uninhabited island called Abulu, which subsequently became forever known as the Isle of Women. But just like Sothorios, there was a reason why this island remained empty. With thin, stony soil, the earth beneath Nymeria's feet wasn't fit for any sort of farming or cultivation. 
Consequently, with little yield, many of her people starved on the island. And so the Isle of Women was clearly not destined to harbour the Rhoynar in the long term, and Nymeria prepared to take to her ships once more. But by now it had been years since they had fled their homes, at least three years after Sothorios, so maybe even four or five in total. Given so much time had elapsed, and we can only imagine how mentally and physically exhausted these unfortunate souls were, some of them were beginning to wonder if it might be safe, or at least safer, to simply return to their mother Royne. From this discontentment and yearning for home arose a challenge to Nymeria's rule, a priestess named Triselka. Claiming to, quote, hear the mother Royne calling her children home, Triselka organized her followers and set off on a journey back to their river. However, like the free folk priestess Mother Mole at Hartholm, Triselka inadvertently led her followers into slavery. The Valyrians had not forgotten their foe, nor had they vacated the Royne, and the dissenting Rhoynish contingent were, quote, hunted down, slain, or enslaved. With every other option exhausted, and with her people ready to abandon her, Nymeria was forced to make a decision. She collected the battered remnants of her fleet and set their sails west. The Rhoynar were headed to Westeros. We've seen Nymeria's people routed in their homeland, then devastated at every turn along their long exodus. In the next segment, we'll look at what happened when the broken fleet arrived on the shores of Dawn. The battered, tattered remainder of the 10,000 ships sailed west with Princess Nymeria. This time, she made for Westeros. After so much wandering, her ships were even less seaworthy than when they had first departed Mother Rhoyne. The fleet did not arrive in Dorne complete. When Nymeria made the decision to leave the Summer Isles for Westeros, she still had to navigate a long and tricky journey northwest through the Summer Sea. To make things worse, looking at the map, it seems there are no small islands en route to stop for fresh water and provisions. As we heard in the quote, the remaining vessels in the fleet didn't make it to the Dornish coast together. Yeah, the World Book informs us of, quote, isolated pockets of Rhoynar on the Stepstones and other less fortunate stragglers who were blown off course to Tyrosh and Lys to be promptly enslaved. And so, all along this journey, Nymeria's refugees have been shedding numbers, leaving her with a relatively small number compared to what she had when she left the Rhoyne. All that said, there were still thousands of her people with her when she finally reached Dorne. Yandel says... The remaining ships made landfall on the coast of Dorne near the mouth of the river Greenblood, not far from the ancient sandstone walls of the Sandship, seat of House Martell. And arriving near the Greenblood, with no crocodiles or poisonous butterflies in sight, the landing must have felt very promising to the Rhoynar, although they would have been painfully aware that this was their last chance at resettlement. Before we analyse what happened next, we need some context, so let's consider what Dawn looked like prior to Nymeria's migration, circa 700 years before the main story. 
In our recent episode on the First Men, we discussed the fact that Westeros was a land of petty kingdoms in ancient days. Well, it seems the Dornish First Men took that chaotic system to an extreme. Maester Yandel states, Petty kings existed throughout all of Westeros, to be sure, but seldom so many nor so petty as the Dornish kings under the First Men. Perhaps it was the unique and diverse local landscape that paved the way for such disorder. Dorne itself is often described as inhospitable, and the World Book describes it as vast deserts of red and white sand, forbidding mountains where treacherous passes are guarded by treacherous peoples, sweltering heat, sandstorms, scorpions, fiery food, poison, castles made of mud. But while this information paints a very harsh picture of Dawn, people have resided in the area since the Dawn Age, cultivating unique ways of life and growing fiercely independent and resilient. While many of the Andor invaders had sought greener pastures up north, leaving the original culture largely intact, to the desperate Roynar it must have seemed like a wonderful place by a large river that had plenty of room and lots of potential. However, first they'd need to find acceptance from the local inhabitants, and we all know from our own world that an influx of asylum seekers can be politically divisive. And to make things even more complicated, the Dornish population was already concerned about their own scant resources. Yeah, Yandel explains, dry, desolate, and thinly peopled, Dorne at this time was a poor land where a score of quarrelsome lords and petty kings warred endlessly over every river, stream, well, and scrap of fertile land. And so, many of the local lords took a wholly negative view of the refugees. To them, the Roinar were, quote, unwelcome interlopers, invaders with queer foreign ways and strange gods. Such was the hostility towards the Roinar that some lords considered driving them back into the sea, which, as we know, would have spelled certain doom for this ancient and once mighty culture. At this point in time, the most powerful house in Dawn were the Ironwoods, who'd presided for many generations over valuable lands and guarded the Stoneway, one of the two great passes through the mountains in the north of the region. They were the least petty of the petty kings, and in contrast, House Martell was considered a small, cautious house that never dared to claim kingship. Surrounded by kings and more powerful factions on every side, the Martells, quote, willingly bent the knees to the Jordan kings of the Tor, the pious Illyrians of God's grace, the many petty kings of the green blood, and the mighty Ironwoods of Ironwood. However, at the time of Nymeria's landing, House Martell's leader, Morris Martell, harbored more ambition than his forebears and sensed a grand opportunity. Factoring into the equation the fact that Nymeria herself was noted to be quite beautiful, Morris began to imagine a future where the Dornish and the Roinar coexisted. Putting Morse's romantic impulses aside for a moment and focusing on practicalities, let's consider the state of the newcomers. The Roynish contingent were composed of eight women out of every ten settlers. Given the Roynar culture of equality, a quarter of those women were fierce fighters. 
Although many Rhoynish men had perished in the Second Spice War, burned by 300 dragons, many of the male children who had boarded the 10,000 ships were now men grown and could also put up a fight. And we can assume that not only had the trials of their long journey hardened the Rhoynar, but the elderly and frail among them had likely perished on the way, Altogether, if they could be settled and nurtured back to full health, the Roinar represented a fighting force of thousands, or even tens of thousands. While the other lords viewed the Roinar as burdensome, hungry mouths to feed, Morris Martell realised that they could bring great benefit to the area, and if nobody else was ready to welcome them, then he could direct all of that advantage towards his own house. In doing so, he would see his host swell to ten times its original size. House Martell could potentially grow from a minor house to one of the largest in Dorne almost instantly. And so, given that Nymeria, the fierce warrior and inspiring leader, had by then captured his heart, Morse Martell decided to join House Martell with the Roinar forever. Love and the desire to bolster his army were certainly the two central motives for Morse to embrace the Roinar. However, it turned out that there were many other benefits to marrying Nymeria, When he married, so too did many within his ranks and retinue. Given the excess of Rhoynish women, Martel's knights, squires and bannermen took them to wife, and some even took paramours. In our recent Andal episode, we saw how much of the conflict with the first men was ultimately answered with marriages that bonded the two peoples together. And here again, it seems that uniting two factions by blood is an enduring way to end any enmity. Because of the attitude and policies of acceptance encouraged by Moors Martel, families were built, strengthening the core of local society. And while the rival lords were probably wondering how the Martels were going to feed these newcomers from their arid lands, the Rhoynish culture provided hidden boons in this regard. Remember those examples of intriguing water magic practiced on the Rhoyne, where water wizards and witches manipulated the river itself? Well, now they took their magic to the green blood, casting spells that, quote, made dry streams flow again and deserts bloom. And if terraforming the landscape to provide a greater harvest was not enough, there were other valuable aspects of Roinar culture that the Dornish could make use of. Now that they were not caught in the endless struggle for survival, the newcomers had leisure time and could thus revive their old art and craft skills that had once been the pride of Essos. As we mentioned earlier, these skills were far in advance of their Westerosi counterparts and their craftspeople produced weapons and scaled armour that exceeded local expectations. Altogether, Morse Martel's political decision to assimilate the downtrodden Roinar reaped great social and economic rewards. Rather than being a liability, the Roinish refugees became an asset to Dorne, As for House Bartel's fortunes, Yendel gives us this summary. Suffice it to say that the wealth and the knowledge that the Roinar brought with them to Westeros, together with the ambition of Lord Moores and the indomitable will of Nymeria of the Roin, enabled the Martels to greatly expand their power. 
But of course, the benefits didn't just go one way. The Rhoynar had found what they had needed since the day Garin the Great's gigantic host was routed by the Dragonlords. They'd finally found a new home. Nymeria had led her band of survivors through unbelievable tribulations to an existence that must have once seemed impossible. And such was her satisfaction with their new home that as leader of the Roynar, she made the decision to settle her people for good, casting aside any notion that she would one day return to Mother Roin. Our wanderings are at an end, she said, as she set fire to her ships on the shores of dawn. We have found a new home and we will live and die here. While Nymeria was outwardly displaying contentment with her new home, that doesn't mean there was an end to the sense of loss. Some of her people were so distressed by the prospect of never returning to their mother Roin that they attempted to replicate their old lifestyle along the banks of the Greenblood. Although the Greenblood was a large river, it paled in comparison to the Rhoyne, feeding into a permanent sense of dissatisfaction for those Rhoynar who refused to assimilate and who became known, rather sadly, as the orphans of the Greenblood. And there were other losses. So far we've illustrated how the Rhoynar were able to revive their culture through their magic and art forms and craft work, all of which they could take great pride in but other aspects of their culture were diminished. The original Roynish language was largely lost in Dawn, evolving only as a characteristic of modern Dornish speech, quote, stretching some sounds, rolling others, and lilting still others in odder places. But with all of that loss acknowledged, the Roynar, who had faced annihilation at the hands of the Dragon Lords and many others in the years prior, managed to preserve central aspects of their culture when they assimilated, and much credit should be given to the Martells at that regard. Yandel notes that the Roynar brought with them their customs and their laws, which the Martells then spread throughout Dorn. So in Dorn, alone among the Seven Kingdoms, it is the eldest child, man or woman, who will inherit, not just the eldest son. Great ladies and famous princesses abound and are the subject of songs and tales as much as the great knights and princes. So when we consider why Nymeria chose to burn her ships, we should keep in mind the lengths the Martells were ready to go to in embracing the new culture. That level of acceptance gave Nymeria the assurance she needed, and the rest is history. The World Book says, The flames lit the coast for 50 leagues as hundreds of leaking, listing hulls were put to the torch and turned to ash. In the light of their burning, Princess Nymeria named Moors Martell the Prince of Dawn, in the Roynish style, asserting his dominion over the Red Sands and the White, and all the lands and rivers from the mountains to the Great Salt Sea. And so, Nymeria's symbolic and practical gesture not only signified the permanent settlement of the Roynar and Dorn, but also established the Martells as an ascending house ripe with ambition. Having achieved her goal of finding a new home, Nymeria ultimately found herself in a position of power. And in the next segment, we'll consider what she did with that power, influencing Dorn for generations to come. 
Nymeria's blood is in me, along with that of Mors Martel, the Dornish lord she married. On the day they wed, Nymeria fired her ships so her people would understand that there could be no going back. Most were glad to see those flames, for their voyagings had been long and terrible before they came to Dorne, and many and more had been lost to storm, disease, and slavery. Nymeria naming her husband Mors, the Prince of Dawn, as a fleet burned was a bold move and spoke to the immediacy of House Martel's ambitions. Although Mors had acted swiftly to integrate the Roynar, from another angle it might have seemed a cynical manoeuvre designed to elevate him to power. But there was no protest from Nymeria, who seems to have shared his aspirations, and the pair soon led their people to war. With the Martell army bolstered tenfold by the newcomers, ruling Dorne became a real possibility, but it wouldn't happen without bloodshed. The Martells forged alliances with houses Fowler, Tolland, Dane, and Uller, and rival petty kings were soundly defeated. When Maester Eamon tells Samuel Tarley about his own introduction to the Night's Watch, he says, No recruit had arrived at the Wall with so much pomp since Nymeria sent the Watch six kings in golden fetters. The six kings he's referring to are those petty kings who warred with Nymeria and Mors Martell. But as we mentioned, there was one house that stood head and shoulders above the petty kings in Dawn. Led by Yurik Ironwood, House Ironwood would put up more of a fight, and their bannermen included Houses Jordain, Will, Blackmont and Corgyle. Dawn was truly divided, and Nymeria knew only total victory would give the Martells power over the Principality. But that victory would not come easily. The war had raged for nine years when the Martell forces took a shocking blow. York Ironwood slew Mors Martell in the Boneway, leaving Nymeria in control of the host. But she was a natural leader and unperturbed by the loss of her husband, within two years she had won the war, with York Ironwood finally bending his knee. Nymeria at last ruled Dorne, not as a queen, but as a princess in the Roynish tradition, as head of a house now known as House Nymeros Martell. As princess, Nymeria had a great deal of influence over the Dornish people and was able to further assimilate the Roynar among them. Dorn was united, with a culture now as diverse as its landscape. To further strengthen her bonds with Dorn, Nymeria next married the aged old Lord Uller of Hellholt and later the younger and notably attractive Sir Davos Dane, who had risen to the esteemed position of Sword of the Morning and therefore carried the famed blade Dorn. But in spite of these marriages, it was Nymeria herself who ruled Dorne, which speaks to the incredible sea change in Dornish culture. That's not to say that she was accepted by all, however, because she had to put down several rebellions and endured multiple attempts on her life. Still, Nymeria ruled Dorne for 20 years, even fending off attempted invasions by kings of the Stormlands and the Reach. And when she died, her eldest daughter, one of four sired by Mors Martell, inherited her position, rather than her son by Davos Dane, and so the Roynish customs and laws were now embedded in Dornish culture. While her heirs were not as famed as she was, 
They were successful rulers, quote, keeping Dorne independent against the rival kings north of the mountains and keeping it whole against the rancorous, hot-tempered lords of mountain and desert whom they ruled. House Martell has guided Dorne for 700 years, raising its great towers at Sunspear, seeing the Shadow City and the Planky Town rise, and defeating all those who threaten its dominion. Following her death, Nymeria's legacy was so powerful that her feats are now the stuff of legend in the current story. There are books and songs detailing her exploits. There's a play about her 10,000 ships featured in the Hedge Knight. There's a star named after her, and Arya Stark names her direwolf Nymeria after the famous warrior princess. Ariane Martel draws great inspiration from Nymeria's spirit, and even the Ironborn apparently respect her accomplishments, with Gilbert Farwind pitching this idea at the King's Moot. We will build 10,000 ships as Nymeria once did, and take sail with all our people to the land beyond the sunset. And as for the Roinar as a whole, their culture has offered much to the world of A Song of Ice and Fire. As an ancient ethnic group, their creativity and craftsmanship was renowned and left a major mark on history when they taught the Andals how to work iron. They stood up bravely against the villainous slavers of the Valyrian freehold, and although they were ultimately defeated, they would continue to defy the dragon lords as Dornish men and women in Westeros. Dorne fought the Targaryens in a series of wars, including the First Dornish War, which ended in the loss of Queen Rhaenys Targaryen and her dragon, Meraxes. They proved to be a stubborn enemy and resisted the pull of the Iron Throne for generations, until they finally joined the Seven Kingdoms via marriage alliances under King Daron II, uniting modern Westeros. While some of their culture was lost during their migration and subsequent assimilation, such as their language and their Roy-centric faith, many of their customs and laws were revived in Dawn and are practiced to this day. Westeros would be rather dull if George had made it a straightforward monoculture, and with Dawn he's offering layers of complex culture and history that holds them apart from the Andal majority in the same way the predominantly first-man culture of the North does. The Roinar have therefore contributed to a richer, more fascinating world. We've seen in this series that the three great migrations have added a sense of verisimilitude to Westeros, and having the First Men, Andals, and Roinar living together gives us great diversity. And there's no region more emblematic of that melting pot than Dorne. There are the dark-skinned, sandy Dornishmen who might descend from the most adventurous First Men to brave the inhospitable climes of the desert. Then there are the fair-skinned, stony Dornishmen living in the mountains with Andal and First Men blood. And finally, there are the olive-skinned, salty Dornishmen by the coasts who descend from the Roinar. But as we mentioned earlier, there's also a fourth group residing in Dorn. Those who refuse to adapt to Dornish culture are called the Orphans of the Greenblood, characters like Ariane's friend Garin living beside the river in Dorn as they had done in Essos. And we come a full circle in A Dance with Dragons when we meet the crew of the Shy Maid. Living on their ramshackle pole boat, Yandri and Yazilla escort Tyrion Lannister down the Rhoyne. He notes that Yandri and his wife were green blood born, a pair of Dornish orphans 
come home to Mother Roin. And so there are evidently still some Roinar whose ancestors fled the Roin, made it to Dornish shores following a harrowing journey, but failed to embrace the new way of life. Over generations, their descendants maintained a riverine lifestyle until finally some of them moved back to Mother Roin. Yandri and Yasilla have found their way back to their homeland, which speaks to the generational trauma of mass displacement and the difficulties of accepting a new lifestyle. Altogether, we have a diverse cast of characters with Roinish descent. Princes and princesses, salty Dornish, warrior women, orphans of the green blood, all playing their role in George R. R. Martin's world. And today we've seen how via the Roinar, George deftly explores themes of home, invasion, colonization, asylum seeking and assimilation, all of which resonate in today's modern world. And the story of the 10,000 ships might even inspire major future plot points with Daenerys Targaryen hoping to travel to Westeros in full force, perhaps bringing the Dothraki people with her in what would be a fourth mass migration to Westeros. We know from her internal monologue that Danny is keenly aware of Nymeria's exploits, so watch out for a new 10,000 ships in the winds of winter. Ultimately, the third great migration left an indelible mark on Westeros, but it wouldn't be the final migration. While the Valyrian journey to Westeros wasn't great in scale, it would be in influence over modern Westeros. And so, in the next and final installments in this series, we'll move from the Rhoyne and Dorne back to Valyria as we discuss what happened when Daenys the Dreamer prophesied that her Targaryen family must look west in order to survive. Thanks so much for joining us today, and now we'll end the episode, as always, by giving credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for telling Nymeria's story, and thanks to Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we will end the episode with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. Thanks to Atori Loon, AJ, Aegon the Sixth, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Astronaut Yara, Oakenfist, Brand the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Cassandra, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Sir Clint the Endel, Convenience or Death, Courtney, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Lady Diana Dane, Esme, Liza, Emily the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Gerald Garcia, Sir Gladworth, Sir Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, Ingvild, Isaac, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Sonarion the White Storm, Julie Beth Tarth, Ara Finway and Glorian, Judson, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Kenneth, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Lynn, Lomas Knight Rider, Survivor of the Yeen Sleepover, Lord Leighton with the Highest Tower, Mage Marmot, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, Matt M, Matt R, as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Molly, Nimble Nick Wenirek, Patrick, 
Peter Pebble, Peter, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, King Ray, first of his name, Richard, Rickle Pickle, Sam, Sarah, Sir Swift, the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Gray, Sir Larcelot of B Hill, Sheila, Cern, That Shiny Bastard, The Rat Chef de Cuisine, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Corn Halfhand, and Yvonne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. You can connect with us via Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, or Patreon. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new regular episode. Bye for now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.